loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Corey Madden. Corey's works include Rain After Ash and Soul Path, commissioned and produced at Pasadena's AXS Festival, Day for Night, presented by Santa Monica's Glow and featured in Poland's Transatlantic Film and Music Festival, Orpheus at UC San Diego and Getty Villa, and Rock, Paper, Scissors, co-written with Laurel Mead at Child's Play and Spiel Theater in Holland. Madden directed And So We Walked, an artist's journey along the trail of tears, created and performed by Delana Studi, produced at Triad Stage and Portland Stage, which represented the U.S. at the Carthage International Theater Festival in Tunisia and will be released by Audible this spring. She's directed plays, opera, and multidisciplinary works at the Mark Taper Forum, Public Theater, Getty Museum, Los Angeles Phil, Boston Court Performing Arts, Trinity Repertory, and Actors Theater in Louisville. Madden is currently executive, executive director of the Monterey Museum of Art and was associate artistic director of Center Theater Group, Mark Taper Forum, where she developed and produced more than 300 new plays during her 22-year tenure. Welcome, Corey. Thank you so much, Cheryl. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. And I was, I was um, letting you in on the fact before we got on that when I'm interviewing someone who's been very well loved and has lost that person, I feel particularly at home. So I'm really happy to talk with you. And especially because we're here largely to talk about the, the podcast that you created about your love and loss. And uh, it felt very uh, evocative of my own experiences. So I really ap appreciated it in that, in that regard. And we'll, of course, be talking about that. Oh, thank you. Uh, so let's, let's kind of start. I don't know, where is the beginning, actually, but <laughs> um, <laughs> we never are quite sure. But can you can you share with the with the listeners a little bit your relationship with your husband and um, what it was in your life or still is in your life? Yes, absolutely. My husband Bruno Lushwarn, um was a French Mexican American who came to the United States at age thirty and uh, became a, a quite busy and and exciting composer in uh, performing arts and also film and media. And I met him in my mid forties um, by chance at a local cafe in our neighborhood. He was a professor at Occidental College at the time and I was the associate artistic director of the Mark Taper Forum. And we actually um, had a very brief conversation over coffee and exchanged cell phone numbers and were engaged six weeks later. <laughs> 
Um, it was really the, 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 the love of my life. He, we had a very strong sense right from the beginning that we were not only um, interested in the same things, we're both working artists, uh, both born in the same year, both parents who had children, um, and that our families were very similar in terms of values. We were, we were families that, that loved um, learning, loved travel, loved exercise, uh, loved our families, loved you know wine and food and having friends over. So we just had so much in common. And it was a um, not, you know, a, a, a human relationship with its ups and downs, but it was a great, great relationship. Um, I met him in 2005. You know, I like the way you put that because, of course, uh, relationships are themselves, but twice in my life, uh, with my first wife who died and with my wife now, uh, that certainty of, you know, no question about being together. I guess that's what I'd say those two relationships had in common. Uh, just a, a commitment to working out the stuff if there's stuff. Yes? Uh, it, yeah, exactly. I got the impression that, that that was the nature of your relationship as well. And so at what age were you and he when his diagnosis came? So he was diagnosed more or less. on February. Yeah, more or less uh, in in 2017. So we would have both been 58. So not very very young, but also these days, that sort of that's about what I am now. Sort of still feels young, uh, not expecting yeah, I, such a serious thing to happen. Yes. Well, interestingly enough, both Bruno and I had fathers who died at at 58, and um, both of heart attacks. And I would say that both he and I have both had sort of brushes with death also earlier in our lives. And I think actually we pretty much lived our lives with what we used, I used to call the thunderbolt theory, which was that we were going to try and have as good a time and do as much of what we really wanted to do on a daily basis because we weren't really confident about the future. Um, so I suppose that when he got diagnosed, it was unfortunately kind of a penny that dropped um, in both of our lives. And I think that that might have been one of the reasons that we were perhaps a little bit more resilient to deal with it uh, mm. wasn't a total surprise. Oh, that's very interesting. You know, I want to, before we get much further, I want people to kind of hear the tone of the podcast. So let's just share a little clip from uh, kind of your introduction at the beginning. Numbered Days by Corey Madden. To be an artist is to seek refuge in the imaginary, to conjure it and shape it so that it expresses the ineffable, the confounding, the unimaginable. For artists, the question of belief is answered by the persistence of our imaginations. This is the way we seek God. Part 1. Youthful Folly Aging four. I was in a wonderful marriage for 13 years. Now I am a widow. I loved my husband day by day, 
and lost him in the same way, day by day by day. This is our story. Day 430. Youthful folly, the I Ching spoke when we bought this big house and garden two years ago. We filled the place with gifts to ourselves, rugs, art, instruments. It was your American house and our victory lap. You are asleep now. I sit nearby listening to you breathe. I stare at the mantle above the fireplace and realize it's become an altar. At the center of this altar is a portrait of us that your mother painted. In it, I am in my wedding dress looking away from you, and you are at the center emerging from the shadows, your love radiating through and beyond me to the viewer. In front of the painting are a ceramic vase shaped like an urn, a crystal casket with vintage wedding rings inside, and an articulated wooden hand posed in a saint's blessing. Assembled over many months, they now have a prophetic quality. What can I do to protect us? Nothing, it seems. Everything casts a shadow. It's inevitable. Everything has a little bit of death in it. But there is more life in us than death. That's the secret I have to share. You know, I, I'm a therapist in my, I guess you'd say my day job, <laughs> and I'm always encouraging people in, in, in grief to create, uh, whether or not that is something they've seen themselves as, uh, you know, as creators, as artistic, I guess, um, because I just find these kinds of experiences uh require creativity in a way but for you and bruno you already were living a creative life was it immediate that you just wanted to express about what you were going through creatively or did that take a while oh it took it took a while it, it took me going to my therapist and and really saying to him because i knew that the stats for bruno's cancer were pretty um slim um that I, I needed to find a way to find hope and that I didn't believe in hope. People had said to us, you know, be hopeful, you know, keep fighting. And he had said, you have to hope for healing. And I said, what is healing? And he said, you know, this is the journey that you go on through cancer. Once you have cancer, you, you have to learn to live with it. And the healing is to learn how to live with cancer. And he said, why don't you make art? And I thought it was the worst possible idea. I was, I think, actually a little bit angry about it and went home and sort of stewed on it for a couple of days and then was sitting next to my husband. And the first poem that I wrote actually was sitting next to him. And just, I was had my iPhone. I was kind of in hypervigilance, watching TV on my iPhone, kind of watching to make sure he was okay and just wrote this very first poem that was really, you know, John said I should make art out of, you know, this experience and here's what I can manage, move my thumb across the iPhone screen, writing exactly what is happening now. Bruno uh, clears his throat and I check to make sure he's not dying. Of course, he's not dying because I'm charged with keeping him alive. 
who knew worry was a superpower? It's not, but my love for him might be. So that was just, you know, I didn't even think of it as a poem. I just thought of it as a, I just honestly thought of it as something that I could write down that, that would express what I was experiencing. But it very quickly began to be clear to me that if I could write things down that were super painful and kind of observe the experience, but at the same time be in the experience, that I could find a kind of in-between place that for me was very, very powerful for my own sense of how to, how to have compassion, I guess, for myself and my husband and for everybody who is a part of it, as opposed to just feeling miserable. For sure. And also, what one thing that goes on for many, many caregivers is a lack of focus on the self, right? It's sort of like yeah. you're, everyone, including yourself, thinks that the whole focus should be the person who's ill, right? <laughs> Which makes only partial sense because, of course, to to give care, you have to be a little solid yourself. So I can imagine that that way of reflecting on your own experience, which was of course different from his in relationship to the same thing, but very different, that must have helped to keep some of the focus on your own process, I guess. Yeah, I think um, in the, at the end of the whole project, which lasted for a thousand and one days and, and really was, um, you know, something that was kind of like a lifeline that kept me feeling like I had a, something I could turn to when I was feeling uh, the need to express, I began to really realize that it was a project that created a path for me to, to live after he passed. And I think when I look back at it and, and think about kind of the source material, which was this, I don't know, 250 poems that I wrote over a thousand and one days, that that's, that's what I see it was was a was my taking care of myself but i think as i was writing it i i think i thought it was a way to i don't know i guess i i, I was more focused on bruno it was absolutely true that i was you know deeply focused on bruno until he passed and even after sure of course yes and it requires both, doesn't it? In a way, uh, I'm I'm remembering the times when I kind of fell apart. They often had to do with when I didn't pay enough attention to my health and well-being and my, you know, mental or physical, and I'd hurt myself or I'd kind of get exhausted or whatever it was. It didn't work for too long for me, anyway. Did you I find that maybe writing was? Yeah, I think I absolutely. I mean, I think that I was a pretty high uh, activity person, and I, I I definitely stay stay pretty engaged. Bruno and I were very busy as artists. We were making, and so we walked an artist's journey along the Trail of Tears while he was sick. He got diagnosed two weeks before we went into rehearsal for a show that we'd been developing for three years. And, you know, we just barreled into it and then it became a kind of um, behemoth. So uh, there were moments where I think both of us realized we weren't really taking care of ourselves. And I definitely had to, after he was gone, kind of figure out how to take care of myself. But I think it took me two or three years really to, to notice what that really meant. I think I had a 
a merry widow first year in the sense of I ran around the world. I did a lot of things for him that were, you know, sort of symbolic acts on his behalf um, that were pleasurable, but, and certainly filled me up in certain ways, but I, I could definitely feel at the end of 18 months that I kind of run through that list of things that you can do to kind of um, ignore that you're fully alone and in a new life and that you have to figure that out. You know, you have to figure out what that means. And um, it was, it was that next phase of mourning that was actually the most reassuring and where I really did begin to learn how to, how to take care of myself. That's interesting. So how, how long was it from his diagnosis to his death? 525 days. So not quite two years, I guess that is. Yeah. Because I think the fact that my wife was sick for 10 years is really relevant. Uh, oh, that yeah. I, it didn't, those things didn't occur to me right away. It was well into it. Oh, I guess I need to take care of myself. And actually my planning for post her death was making a commitment to take care of myself. <laughs> so I kind of got right. really quiet when she died, but I think that is a function of time. So that's really, really interesting to ponder. It's time for our first break, so we'll come back and talk more after that. Listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. And to find Corey Madden's Numbered Days, the podcast we're talking about, now available free of charge, you can go to fountaintheater.com. Be back soon. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Resiliency is the human capacity to lean into individual and collective strengths with compassion and grit when faced with the challenges of lived experience. Join host Elaine miller Karras for Resiliency Within, a program of hope and healing designed to inspire you to integrate wellness into your life, your family, and your community. In challenging times, you'll want to tune in every week. Resiliency Within can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. 
are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Corey Madden, whose podcast, Numbered Days, chronicles her wonderful marriage and what she and her husband did to stay connected during his illness and his death. And also, uh, we're here to talk about your grief process, which uh, I've known a couple of people who went on fast forward the way you're describing, you know, did a whole lot right away and then kind of realized they had to do something else later. <laughs> uh, some people are flattened and can't do that. But um, what do you think fed you enough to have that kind of energy? Uh, because a lot of people are just physically depleted by grief in a way that makes it impossible to run around even if they wanted to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I actually had kind of... Um a sort of surge of, of, I, I would say it was a combination of my love for Bruno, just almost a mystical experience of feeling like I was lifted up by how much I loved him. And I felt very inspired to lift up his family and his friends and, and celebrate his life. So mm-hmm. I would say that the year, the first year, particularly, I called it the Tour de Bruno, in fact, and got T-shirts made because he loved the Tour de France. And, you know, he was a Frenchman. And um, I, I, we went and did a series of um, memorials of one kind or another. And I think that's a lot of what really kept me going was producing. Because, of course, I'm an artist who makes things. And so as a, as a director, you know, producing is, is sort of second nature. Um, and I did also have the completely ridiculous notion that he could be that I could find somebody right away. I'm not, not immediately, but I, I found myself almost again, sort of, I would say I was a little bit um, delusional <laughs> about this. I just thought, well, you know, I'll just find you're, somebody. You're delusional person. until these things happen, right, Corey? <laughs> <laughs> well, because, I, I wasn't even two happened. years in when I met my second wife. So <laughs> maybe well, that's great. Well, it, has, it hasn't happened for me yet, but hope springs eternal. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, so that, that was something that I did. I also, I dated a few people and, and what I learned through that experience. And I think actually that was what got me to finally kind of quiet myself down was that he was irreplaceable. And I, I, I realized that I had to really understand that. And I didn't really understand that. And so there was a period of time where I just uh, recognized that he was irreplaceable and felt that more. It didn't stop me, uh, in terms of still being able to do things, but it stopped me in terms of knowing exactly where my life was going to go after that. And I, I did in, in the end decide to, to leave North Carolina and come here to California and be closer to my family and take on a new job. And I did all that during the pandemic. And weirdly, the, the experience of being kind of locked up in Monterey and running a museum on Zoom, but in a very beautiful place where I could really, you know, walk in nature and, and almost be marooned, I guess you might say, 
Mm. I really found that very, very helpful to me. It was like going on retreat. And I think that it was during that period of time, as I was writing the play and working on it, um, I felt like I turned the corner. I did a lot of meditation and I was very fortunate to have some really powerful experiences of lifting of my grief. And, um, you know, just over time, it just lifted. And I feel, you know, quite different than I did, let's say, a year ago. That brings up a couple of interesting points, one of which is that calamity, uh, and of course, we could we could count COVID as a real calamity, a worldwide calamity. But you never know what people will make of it. And you're describing that in some way it slowed you down um, and and gave gave room for another part of your process there. Um, I think that's exactly that's exactly right. I, I think I got more intentional about and and I do think it goes back to what you said, which was, to be intentional about what it meant to, I call it a practice, what it meant for me to have a practice and to sort of name and understand what that practice is, which is part of it is being a creative person. Part of it is needing to have a quiet and, and reflective time of almost every day. Um, part of it is connecting to people who I really still love and who you know, are, are very much part of the matrix of my heart. Um, including his family members and, you know, people who remember him as well as new friends. And I think that all those, that recipe, um, you know, I think that I had a, a very different experience of being partnered. When I was partnered, Bruno was kind of that person for me. He was, he was all that. And now it's this much, it's me who is part of, you know, I am my own true love in a certain way. And mm. in addition, these other people are, part of my love and I've, I've just had I've come to much more peace about the fact that I can you know if I meet somebody that'll be great but if I don't meet somebody I am I, I am in love uh, I'm in love with with my life I'm thinking back to after my wife died and and um, the ways in which it was somewhat confusing well at first I was euphoric honestly um, which maybe relates a little to that energy you're talking about. Eventually, yeah, yeah. that 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 um, changed, but um, there there was some sense. There were the things I lost and the things I didn't lose. Which, of course, twenty five years, twenty six years later, I still haven't lost. I still feel very connected mm -hmm. to her, for want of a mm -hmm. better way. Mm -hmm. But of course what was lost was her in this world for sure you know right. the co-parent yeah. you know all the things that we were to each other here on this earth were, were completely gone and so i kind yeah, of think, I think of that as you're talking you know that has to be reckoned with but then uh having been truly loved it does it does become easier to fully love yourself don't you think for sure. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, just to go back to that comment that you made about the loss of what I, I would say, I, I, we lo you lose the future of the person that you love and you also love the, the you and that person that will never exist again. And those are two really unique 
beautiful things that that them coming to an end it's incredibly sad because both of them for particularly for artists you know you think about all the works of art that that Bruno didn't get to make and then because he and I made a lot of work together all the beautiful works of art we didn't get to make together and then all the ways in which our family inevitably had to change and I that's probably the toughest thing for me because I was deeply in love with his with his family and he was deeply in love with mine and everybody in that family unit you know feels his absence still and so that you reform in certain ways you know we weren't everything gets shaken around doesn't it yeah and you have to that that was something I had to kind of really take on and recognize it was going to not go away altogether, but that it was going to be, you know, it was going to change. But, For sure. Um, and then, then you know, the the I definitely agree that one of the great gifts of really knowing profound love is that I am able to bestow that on myself. You know, I, I guess I would just say I, I it's not, it's not, I don't even know if the word profound is quite the right one, but just simple without, um, neurosis or caveats or anything like that just deep love is something that I think if you are lucky enough to experience it even if it's with a dog you know um, (laughs) for sure sometimes most particularly (laughs) exactly I think you can manifest that for your you know you can give that to yourself and you just it's just a process of giving it to yourself and I think that I had to remove some some barriers and you know for me meditation is the main way that I do that and it's hard to put that into words what that transition is but but I you know I ask for it fairly sincerely I have could it be okay if I read a poem actually about that it's the last poem that I wrote in this series absolutely yeah it's called regarding day 1001 and it was written uh in August of 2021 so it was written way after 1001 days had gone by Um, 18 months later, after I searched and searched for a poem, it turns out I never wrote about a day I somehow imagined would bring an end to all my grief. I now understand the impossibility of predicting when the heart will heal. I can only share that mine did quite recently after yet another meditation racked by tears. After years sincerely seeking to be released, I felt my pain at losing Bruno float up like a feather lifted on a breeze. Love my own true love, the love I found in morning light, in numbered days, in meditation, in Monterey. While this can never replace the love we made, this love of my own creation reminds me that life is ours to shape despite the pain, the mess, the harrowing grief that comes our way. We must try and try to make something beautiful each day and keep our hearts open and expectant, for grace will come, this I know now, with certainty. You're you're bringing me back to when my my wife first died, and um, I I had this thought that's a little hard to describe, but I I have a feeling you might understand it, uh, which was that it would be a dishonor of her not to love myself because yeah. she thought yeah. I deserved to be loved. So in a way, I would make yeah. her wrong if I didn't love myself. Does that make sense to you? Yes, absolutely. I think that, that you know, one of the ways that I think falling in love, quote unquote, works is that you, um, you uh, are, are vulnerable 
um, you give you give in, you know, in the best sense of the word, to someone who loves you. You have to actually let go in order to, to have someone love you and also to really, in my experience, really fall in love. You know, the kind of falling in love that is not romantic but is more spiritual, I would say. And I think that that it's an answer to a question that most of us walk through life with for, for many years, which is, you know, how will I ever find love? And, and the answer is that it's a, it's a kind of, um, it's a kind of surrender. And I think that when you then surrender, um, I guess your, your expectations of being more perfect than you are, and you just allow yourself to be the human that you really are and, and embrace that and take care of that the way that someone who truly loves you does, it, then life becomes a lot simpler. Um, I think life doesn't, it isn't as painful. Hey, let's circle back because I, uh, there's a part, there's a clip from your, from your podcast that really, to me, captures that experience of recognizing the other person as your, as yours, you know, um, could, could we play the restaurant clip before we get out of this segment here? Bonsoir. Table for two. What? Café Figaro is an exact replica of a Parisian café. Zinc bar, pressed tin ceilings, bent wood chairs, tiny tables. Not bad. We are seated near the window. The dining room is empty. Because it's 5.30. Who goes on a date at 5.30? Women in their 40s with two... Monsieur, les cartes de vin. Do you like Bordeaux? I do, yes. I mean, oui. Nous prendrons une bouteille de Bordeaux et une assiette de fromage avec du pain et du beurre. Sorry? What? A bottle of Bordeaux, a cheese plate and some bread and butter. Oh, right. <laughs> I test the waiters to see if they're really French. This one, no. <laughs> Mademoiselle? By now, I know Bruno's French and also Mexican. He's a composer and also a professor of cognitive science. So naturally, I'm impressed and also intrigued. And suddenly, I realize he's a European artist scientist. It's something I've been saying for the past three years that I will only fall in love with a European artist scientist. Huh? It's un peu fou, a little crazy, but it's what she wants. But what I don't want is any more heartache, so I decide to tell him up front. The very first thing she tells me is I have two boys. They're 11 and 6. So if kids are not your thing, he reaches for my hand and holds it with both of his. I think it's wonderful you have children. I also have a son in Paris. This is it. The moment. The afternoon sun is pouring in the front window and it hits our hands. They glow. And her eyes light up radiant, green. I, I will never forget. It was <sighs> magic. For I don't know how long we hold hands and talk about life and earth and then... <laughs> oh, sorry. Uh, 
I have to... She just gets up and leaves. Call my ex-husband. It's almost seven, and I have to ask him if he can keep the kids. Overnight. Oh, God. Is this a really bad idea? How drunk am I? <sighs> Sorry, I had to make a call. My babysitter said he... He could keep the kids. <clears throat> Overnight. I pay the bill, and we... Leave together. When we get outside... Right there on the street? I kiss her. <sighs> and she drops her purse. I need to come clean about the purse drop. It wasn't exactly for effect, but I may have been aware that I was doing it. It was a great kiss, an amazing kiss, and... My kiss made her drop a purse. It's his favorite part of the story. It's the moment for me later that night. <sighs> oh. <sighs> the sex... <sighs> was breathtaking. It's just so much the feeling of falling for someone who's who's perfect, right? <laughs> exactly. And, and really, I, I adore two parts of that, especially. Uh, one is the fact that you put together three unlikely qualities that you needed this person to have, and he had them. <laughs> <laughs> and the other was that you called your ex-husband your babysitter. <laughs> I think that's pretty good. <laughs> what a what a what a delirious dinner. <laughs> I think that's a great way to describe it. It was delirious in certain ways. It, it, the the, the uh, European artist scientist thing was really kind of amazing because. I did a very unscientific study of all my friends who I thought were in happy marriages after my own marriage, my first marriage dissolved and really noticed some things about them. And, and I then did an inventory of myself and I realized that, you know, part of my problem was that I, I came from quite a uh, sciencey background and love science and, but I was an artist. And so I thought, okay, well, I have to meet somebody who's got some science, you know, some intellectual background, some science there. And then, I, I found that, you know, I wasn't really for all markets in certain respects as an American woman and, and that I'd most of my friends were uh, in one way or another immigrants and many of them from Eastern Europe and Europe. And so I just tacked on European um, and, and, you know, that became this little mantra. And it, for three years, I really didn't meet anyone except one Italian sort of physicist at one point, but he had kind of a mother problem. And, you know, so the fact that this wonderful man who really was all those things and more, he was, you know, so many other things that I absolutely loved. And I think I was for him as well. Uh, you know, that was really just some, such a miracle. Honestly, it was a real miracle. And, and then of course, um, you know, then we do more than we ever thought we could for that kind of love. I don't know how people do yeah. it without that kind of love. They do do it, though, and it's much harder. Time for a second break. 
uh, listeners, you can go to my website, weatherandgrief.com. You can go to the Good Grief host page to find Corey Madden's numbered days and more about, more about Corey and her husband, Bruno. You can go to numberedays.org. Back after the break. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins looks at how natural healing and biological dentistry can safely and effectively treat most health problems. You'll hear about the innovations in both traditional and alternative medicine therapies with doctors and dentists, along with discussions with chiropractors, medical experts, homeopaths, naturopaths, and energetic healers. It's great to have all the best information in one place. And Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins brings it all together. Listen Thursdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I've been talking with Corey Madden, creator of Numbered Days, a podcast about her husband and her relationship, his illness and death and her grief. And um, one thing that stood out, because I listened to the entire podcast, um, and one thing that stood out that's maybe understated in the clips is um, excellent support. It seems to me that, uh, like me and my wife, you had a community of people to stand behind you, under you, around you, <laughs> you know, all those, all those words. Uh, and, and I feel that makes such a difference. I always emphasize that it's a different experience when you don't have that. Don't you feel? Well, I don't know what it's like not to have support, but I will say that support was absolutely critical. And I think that, um, 
on the one hand, people definitely showed up for us. We had incredible uh, medical support. We had a wonderful GP who really went way beyond being a GP. She, she really became a friend, and she introduced us to an incredible palliative care doctor who also became almost like a, a guru, I would say. But then I think also this project of writing these poems, and eventually when Bruno was in hospice, we actually asked friends, they, people kept asking us what they could do, and we said, well, you know, send us poems. And we collected poems from friends and, and had a project of writing these poems down by hand and then reading them to Bruno. And, you know, he played music and was in, an, in a music, old-time music circle, and all those folks came to hospice and played music. And his friends showed up and we we did call in i guess the creative spirits to help make the experience lighter and i highly highly encourage people to to reach out in that way um because because instead of feeling like you know this is this whole thing for me is that there's so much more life in you than death if you're lucky enough to um Bruno did stay sentient right up to the end. He was really still making work and still active until probably four days before he passed. And so from my point of view, he experienced the very best that you can experience, which is, you know, wasn't in pain. He had friendship around him. He was creative until the end. He knew he was loved. He didn't have to experience any of it by himself. And the same thing to a certain degree was true for me. I was not by myself. I was not um, isolated. And that, that made a huge, huge difference. I, I agree so completely. I mean, our, our house was packed that, you know, the last several, maybe the last week of my wife's mm -hmm. life. Not in the room all the time, <laughs> in some other room, no. but, uh, but I, I feel we knew they were there. Uh, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't queuing into the details of who exactly, just supported really supported yeah. and I think that makes such a deep difference uh, in grief as well yeah. yeah I can definitely say that one of the things about um, you know for instance the hospice program that we were in was a was a nonprofit hospice program in Winston-Salem North Carolina and it was remarkable they let you be there any time of day that you wanted to they had wonderful counseling that was available to myself and my children so I think that um, you know as the I guess you would just say the, the the network for support for someone who's in this situation has gotten, I think, better. I know in some cases it's it's not as rich as it might have been in that town where there's a university hospital and and um, a lot of nonprofit um, action associated with medicine and health. But it, for me, that was one of those things that I just thought, what an incredible resource, you know, to to have people in addition to your family, to also have people who really are used to and professional about helping people through what, what is a very difficult time. Absolutely. And, you know, I have to say, I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, pretty death, death literate community compared to a lot of places, but there is not very much, uh, unless you have a whole lot of money, not very much um, residential hospice care. And it's, mm -hmm. there, there are, my wife died at home, that worked. We had incredible support from community. But for a lot of people, that is just not, 
possible and then people end up dying in the hospital which is quite different i feel uh mm-hmm. than what you're describing or what i experienced so well, i have we, we actually we went to the emergency room and had a very you know medical oriented experience of the beginning of this three weeks that Bruno was in hospice that we really called a halt to because I do think that the models are completely different. You're in the hospital and they want to fix you. And what they really can offer you is fixes. And we were at the point where we said, let's stop. You know, we, we need, we need the sanity that is comfort care. And that was, we were lucky that within the system that we were in, it was possible to be, I think we were government supported through something. I don't know, I guess, disability to be able to be in hospice. I think we got 21 days or maybe 14 days. And then we actually ended up paying for seven. And I think that was the best decision that we could have made because I didn't feel equipped to take care of Bruno at home. And this was a way that we could be with him whenever we you know, wanted. And we had people with him all day long, but ultimately we all could also sleep, which I think for us was incredibly important to be able to, you know, have enough energy to really be present. Yes, I I have colleagues who are doing a lot of work, um, you know, removing, removing ideas about how people should, what conditions people should die in. Uh, For instance, uh, Sunita Puri wrote a book called That Good Night. She's a palliative care doctor. You know, a lot of, um, but also changing the medical system so that it helps people make that transition that you made from uh, intervention to uh, comfort. Because that's a tricky thing. And most of the time, it's the patients and families that have to make the decision. You know, the, the medical system will often go on way too too long. <laughs> too long. I, that's right. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's a little bit where I, I, I would just say I, I do feel lucky. I had some medical resources in, in my, you know, background, back pocket with, and some people who had been through similar kinds of situations and had made different kinds of choices. And I, I think Bruno and I just were, again, mindful. Maybe, maybe you could even say that and I, again, don't recommend that you produce your, your husband or your partner's death, but I can say that being somebody who produced theater for 30 years, you, you look ahead, you have a lot of foresight. And probably one of the hardest things for me was that I was keeping a part of me that was very practical at all times, thinking about the practicalities of certain kinds of medical decisions. And I knew that it would be very difficult at certain moments if I didn't um, advocate with Bruno, and he he made the decision himself. But if I didn't, at certain moments, say to him, you know, I think we could, I think we could benefit from doing this or that. Which do you really want to do? And several big moments over the 15 months, you know, he and or I were were really stepping out of, I guess, the personal pain into kind of more strategic thinking, and just yeah. deciding, you know, how to how to run it, you know. You know, one of the things I say to people often is you can't be prepared, but you can prepare because the people that have the roughest time um, are the people who avoid thinking about it until they must, right? (laughs) That's really tough. Yeah. 
<laughs> if you think yeah, it through some right. in advance and you talk about it and you know each other about it, it's really helpful. Let's let's play one more clip from your podcast. Uh, I think this might be the final poem of your of your um, series. Is that correct? I'm I'm honestly not sure what this clip is to tell you the truth, but okay, let's just play it and then we'll then we'll uh, figure it out together. <laughs> if it's if it's a repeat, we can pull it down. <laughs> This poem has no date. August, Maine. Reprieve. No desire. To write. Only. To live. With you. Without. Worry. Play fiddle. As I row your bow. Rising. As my oars. Dip. All this. Time. Together. Resolves. Recedes. Becomes. Memory. it all comes back to me <laughs> yeah that's actually pretty early early in the piece it's really after bruno had surgery and sort of while we were just recovering from the initial treatment and had to wait then to see whether or not he uh he was remained cancer free it conjures though uh for me uh, a moment with my with my own beloved actually very, very close to her death, when everything but just being alive was was not present. The past wasn't, the future wasn't, we were just right there. And I was actually not at all tense, which was, people found very odd. But I think that came from practicing just being right where I was, since we didn't know what the future was going to be like. Um, a, a detail listeners know is that she was supposed to die in about six months and she lived for oh nearly 10 years. So, 10 years. you know, the future was not predictable. I think there's, you can adjust to living like that. Uh, I, I found it came very easily to me at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, living with not knowing what was going to happen next. Uh, it, it felt familiar. Yeah, I think that getting comfortable with uncertainty is probably one of the things that I learned through this experience, which was that um, you can get more comfortable with uncertainty. Um, it's not, it's, I don't think it's possible to completely, you know, lose track of the fact that someone that you love deeply might die. But, but we did have, you know, days where the tension would go up, let's say, when a scan was going to happen. And then you'd feel, you know, two, three, four, five, six days go by and life would just kind of return to normal. And you'd realize you can only live in that kind of, you know, heightened state of, of dread for so long and that you have to get on with your life. You know, there's always a turkey to be cooked and a kid coming home. And I think that that's, that's actually one of the great lessons. The fact of the matter is that we are all dying while we're living all the time. We just don't acknowledge it. You know, Absolutely. we're ticking down a clock, right? And it's it's really, I think Bruno was great at ignoring that. And he, he made it much easier for me because he just did not focus on dying. He just focused on living. And oh, that, what a great right place. Right up until the last minute. 
What a great he, place he for us to stop this. for the day, Corey. We've run out of time, hey. but uh, oh, that's no the bottom line, isn't it? Thanks for being with me. <laughs> and you can Absolutely. find Thank Corey you Madden. So You're welcome. And numbered days at numberddays.org. Next week, I'll have I.B. Casey Cuey to talk about her autobiographical novel, Groovy Girl. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.